we come to Palm Sunday and Jesus come, coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It's uh, the last time he will enter Jerusalem. He only has a few more days to live on this world. And we see in just a few days between Sunday and the following Sunday, momentous events will occur in Jerusalem that have never been seen before, will never be seen again. Momentous sequence of events which, for some, will end on a cross, but for others will continue to discarded grave clothes and an empty tomb. A momentous sequence of events which define our faith as Christians. What happens in the next week defines us as Christians. And a momentous sequence of events which change the history of the world and actually change the direction that this universe was headed in. All this happened in just a few days. <clears throat> and this passage, uh, Mark 11, or the same passage, Matthew 21 in Matthew's Gospel, the same passage in Luke, all the Gospel writers mark this, this, uh, this, uh, this event, this time of Palm Sunday. It's a hinge, it's a pivoting point in the Gospels. And things are different after this point. The tone of the Gospels are different. Up to this point... All the Gospels have a rustic feel to them. We see Jesus going along dusty roads, which we like, that idea. And we hear him on a boat in the lake preaching to people. And we see him in our imagination on a mountain, giving the Sermon on the Mount. And we imagine him walking through the cornfields, picking the ears of corn with his disciples. It's a very rural uh, ministry up to this point, largely centred around Galilee. But from now... The entirety of Jesus' ministry, which is huge, will all take place within the confines of the holy city of Jerusalem and a tiny town called Bethany on the edge of Jerusalem. It will all happen in the city. So today, we will do two things with the passage which we will come to. First of all, we will tour the passage. Hopefully, I will be your guide and we'll tour the passage We'll look at a few things on the way through. We will uh, enter the streets of Jerusalem. Noisy, chaotic, dangerous. We will try and see them as Jesus would have seen them, as, he, as Jesus may well have seen them. That's the first thing we'll do. We'll tour the passage. Then secondly, as with all good tours, we'll stop off at one place and look at it in detail. So we'll stop off at just one line and spend some time there and ask what does that mean? What does that particular line mean? So, we'll tour the passage, we'll enter the streets, we'll see a few points, we'll point out a few points of interest, and then we'll just look at one line, one idea. Okay, so, as with all good tours, before the bus sets off, there's a little preamble. So, here's the, here's, here's the start, the, before we actually get going. It's Passover. Uh, one of the big three festivals in the Jewish calendar, Passover, uh, Pentecost and Tabernacles. Passover was a huge one. So here we remember, if we're Jews, we remember the time when we were slaves in Egypt, around 1500 BC, something like that. And uh, we couldn't, Pharaoh refused to let us go, and in the end, God sent the angel of death. Uh, and all the firstborn of the Egyptians was put to death that, on, on a terrible night. But for the Jews, for the Israelites, the angel passed over. So this is the time of Passover. Thousands of people are making their way into Jerusalem. Thousands of pilgrims. Thousands of pilgrims, even from Galilee, will have been making their way into Jerusalem on this day. 
one of which came in on a donkey. And we think of uh, Palm Sunday as a triumphant march into Jerusalem, and in some ways it is, in some ways it is, but in some ways it is not. In some ways it is actually a thoughtful Jesus, a subdued Jesus, who enters Jerusalem that day. This short passage, I think, is a lot more thoughtful than we often realise. It begins with a strange incident to do with acquiring a donkey, and it ends in a subdued, low-key manner with Jesus looking at everything and then retreating to Bethany. Let's dive into the passage and read it. It's Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. And the NIV actually puts that title, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. But it's not all about triumphalism, this passage. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, not or you, but if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied as a doorway. As they untied it, some men standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So let's tour the passage, as I said. Even at the start, the first line, there's, an ama- there's a huge contrast. There's a very stark contrast. As they approached Jerusalem, came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So Bethany and the Mount of Olives are two completely, utterly different places for Jesus. Bethany is a wonderful place, a place of friends and great memories. It's the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Possibly his closest friends as well as the disciples. What great memories Jesus has there. Great times. He went, we believe he went there often. There was that day when Jesus went there and the sisters quarrelled. But it worked out in the end. And then there was that momentous day when Lazarus, their brother, actually died. And Jesus went and wept with the sisters. But then he brought Lazarus back to life. What memories. What a wonderful place for Jesus. But that stands in complete contrast to the Mount of Olives, which contains at the edge of it the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the place of great agony, a place of ultimate betrayal for Jesus. So right there in that first line are these two places of huge contrast for the person of Jesus. And then there's this... uh, Great detail about how to go and get this donkey. And you could say, why didn't they just say a donkey was acquired? But this was important. It was important that it was unblemished, unridden. It was important that animals in the Old Testament 
used for sacred purposes, were unblemished and unused. Firstborn, almost perfect. And this specific reference to a donkey is Jesus' fulfillment of a prophecy that came 500 years before in Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, says this. It's speaking of the coming of Zion's king, the coming of the king to Jerusalem. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was always understood that Israel's great hero would arrive in this strange way. It's a messianic sign, a messianic prophecy. And we know that Jesus didn't normally travel on a donkey, so this was unusual. In fact, this is the only recorded place in the Gospels where Jesus rides a donkey. We often think donkeys are something to do with Jesus, but it's only this, this is the only place he actually rides a donkey. So it was a deliberate, a deliberate messianic action. And was it provocative or what? Was it provocative or what? This is uh, Jesus already covered in controversy, already controversial, already amassed, amassed a fo- uh, 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 thousands of followers, already has criticised the teachers and the authorities, already has visited Jerusalem at least a couple of times and criticised them to their face. And here he comes... Into, the, into our capital, the holy city, into enemy lines, into the enemy camp, right here, on one of the greatest days of the year, Passover, riding on the foal of a donkey, fulfilling the messianic prophecy. For the, for the teachers of the law and the authorities, you can understand, they were insulted, they were offended. In, and now this Jesus comes into our city, our holy place, trying to fulfill the messianic prophecy. This is too much. This is boiling point. This is the final insult. Something will be done. A question which I think is good to ask, we won't go dive into it, is this one as well. Was this a political action by Jesus? Coming into the holy city with his followers and with all the reputation that he has, fulfilling a messianic prophecy before the authorities. Was it a political action? What, some time ago, some years ago, in a lecture, on we were do, have studying Christianity and social and political uh, effects of Christianity, and our uh, tutor, Graham Sparks, at the college said, it's coffee time, go for your coffee break. But over coffee, just think about this question. Was Jesus political? Go and have your coffee. Great question. I'm not going to tell you what we came back with. <laughs> But in the study groups, we'll have this question. If you really want to know what I think, go to my website and type, was Jesus political, into the search box. You'll find some thoughts there. We will carry on. We will carry on. But you'll get that in the study groups this week as well. And the people loved it. They thought, this is great. Here's Jesus, here's this guy fulfilling the messianic prophecy. Hosanna, which means save us, or Lord save us. It's not really a prayer, it's more a praise, shout of praise. Like, praise the Lord, praise God, this is great. Hosanna, Jesus, Hosanna. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. We'll come back and look at this in a couple of minutes. Let's just carry on through the passage. And then, right at the end, there's this last verse, which is one of those verses that we easily read past, because it doesn't seem to say anything. We easily uh, walk past. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So now the crowds have gone. The, the, the hubbub has died down. Only the twelve remain. But suddenly it's quiet. Jesus demonstrates a quiet foreboding, I think. He's been to Jerusalem before. He's not a sightseer. He's seen that he's not queuing up for the guided tour of the temple. But he looks around at everything. Most likely, Jesus is taking it in, almost inspecting the place of sacrifice. So this is where it will happen. This is where these things will begin in just a few days. Sacrifice, torture, crucifixion, all these were familiar to Jesus and the people of his day. The the idea of crucifixion was the Romans' uh, chosen instrument of torture and execution. And it wasn't that uncommon to see people crucified. So uh, in, uh, in, the, in the Roman Empire, particularly, if your city was defeated by Rome, <clears throat> your army was led away back to Rome as captives chained. A hundred miles from Rome, often you'd go in on this road called the Appian Way, which you can still go in on. A hundred miles from Rome, the procession would stop. And the last hundred people would be crucified on either side of the road. One here, one here, one here, one here, one here, one here. And the message is, you don't mess with Rome. Then they would go another ten miles, then they would stop. The hundred people on the end would be taken off and crucified either side of the road. One here, one here. The message, don't mess with Rome. Go another ten miles, the last hundred people in the chain are taken off and crucified either side of the road. Don't mess with Rome, was the message. And it was horribly effective. It was used to suppress people, to punish, to, to, to give an example. And it was shameful. We sometimes look past that. People were crucified naked. For we, when we see Jesus on a crucifix, we put a little loincloth there for our own modesty. But it was shameful. He was crucified naked. As that verse in Hebrews said, scorning its shame, the shame of the cross was real as was the excruciating pain of the cross. And so here is Jesus, knowing these things are to happen. He looks around everything at the temple. This is where it begins. And then he does the most human thing, the thing that probably you or I would do. He goes to spend time with friends. He goes to spend time with his closest friends, with the twelve and the three, the twelve disciples, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in these uh, last few days, it's only a few days now of Jesus' ministry on earth, a lot of the teaching we associate with Jesus comes out of these last few days. So the parable of the wedding uh, guests, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, that whole thing of uh, should we pay tax to Caesar or not, Mary anointing Jesus' feet in Bethany, all those things happen we believe, after this point in these last few days, the Gospels are not always chronological. We can't always assume 
that something on the next page happened on, after something on the previous page, but we do believe that most of these incidents that are re recorded after Mark 11, after Matthew 21, occurred in, just in these last few days. So he spends time with them, Mary and Martha, Lazarus and the Twelve. And what a human thing to do. Just what you or I would do, probably. If something awful was going to happen, what would we do? We'd say, I'm going to spend some time with friends, with my family. So that's the end of the, the quick tour. Okay, now we'll jump off and we'll spend time at just one point. Which is this, the middle line of that passage there. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What is this that they're asking for? What was this kingdom they were going on about? What is the coming kingdom of our father David? And two questions we'll ask when we look at this line. First question is, what did this mean for them? And then what does it mean for us? These are always the two questions to ask whenever you, we study scripture. Always. What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? The basis of all biblical scholarship is pretty much those two questions. So, what were they going on about when they said, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, what were they talking about? What kingdom? Well, in simple terms, they wanted the good old days. It's Jesus. Please, we want the good old days. When we had our kingdom, it was great. We had our own country, we had our own God, Yahweh, we had our own King David, and wasn't David great? He was amazing. They did, oh, our grandfathers and our grandmothers have told us the stories of David, and what a great king he was. Seeing those uh, um, days, and, and David is 1000 BC, so it was a long time before, the good old days, but in that day, every nation had a kingdom, and uh, there'd be a kingdom over here, with a bunch of people, Canaanites or Ammonites or Edomites, and they'd have had a god, which could be Molech or, or Baal or somebody like that. They had a king. That was their kingdom. Then there's a group of people over here, and they'll have another king, and they have their god. That's their kingdom. And we're Israel. We've, we've got Yahweh, our god, and we've got David, our king. This is our kingdom. And, and we thought it was great. So bring it on. We want to go back to that time. It was as basic as that. Wasn't it wonderful? So, come on, Jesus. Hosanna's to you, mate. Bring us, get, bring us back our kingdom like we used to have, our own laws, our own politics, our own government, our own king. That's the kingdom they were asking for. So, asking, they were, and we've said this before, they were asking good questions, but they were expecting the wrong answers. They were hoping for the wrong answers. So, when they were shouting, Hosanna, save us, Yes, yeah, yeah, save us, but Jesus wasn't going to save them from Roman occupation. He was going to save them in a much more fundamental way than that. And when they were shouting, give us the kingdom, they meant, give us our kingdom back, like we had when we, when we had David. And Jesus was bringing a kingdom, but not that kingdom. So what then is this kingdom? If it's not a physical area with our own king and our own laws, what is this coming kingdom? It's a phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it, is a phrase that's used often in the Gospels. Jesus talked about it. The kingdom of heaven is close to you, he would say. The kingdom of heaven has come to you. The kingdom of heaven is among you, he would say. But what, what does it mean? Well, there's two inadequate answers. The first answer is just wrong. 
It's not a physical country. That was their mistake. And the second answer is inadequate, and it's sometimes our mistake. It's not only about heaven. <clears throat> this kingdom that Jesus brings is not only about heaven. That's our mistake sometimes. It is about heaven as well. It includes heaven. It includes eternal life. It includes all the promises that we see in the Bible. But it's not only that. There's more than that. <clears throat> so then what is this kingdom? It's no simple definition, but here's one which I think works as well as any other. The kingdom of God is any place or any person under God's authority. Any place or any person where Jesus reigns. The kingdom of God is any place or any person where God has dominion. So does God rule in your life today? Then the kingdom of God has come to you. Does God rule in your home? Then the kingdom of God has come to your home. God rules in this church, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God has come to this church. Any person or place under God's authority is the kingdom of God, is the kingdom of heaven. This is how it starts. Simply put, when we say the kingdom of God has come to you, this is a relationship with Jesus, isn't it? This is the start of it. The start of kingdom is a relationship with Jesus. And that brings us in our lives a purpose, a direction, a meaning, which we didn't have before. Most of us, I didn't have that before. It brings joy and it brings promises. It's not a bed of roses. Being in the kingdom doesn't mean everything's, everything is fine now. And Jesus actually says, for example, in John 13... You will have troubles in this world. You will have troubles in this world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have troubles in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And heaven, what we call heaven, therefore, where God has dominion over everything, is where everything is kingdom. God has authority over everything. Everything is under God's authority. Then it's all kingdom at that point. So there's like... Um, there's two aspects to the kingdom of heaven. Some of it is now that we see now, the relationship with Jesus, the promises of Jesus. We see that now. But some of it is not yet, which is what we call heaven or eternal life. And the kingdom is all of this together. All of this summed together is kingdom. Some of it is now and some of it is not yet. We talked about this probably a year ago. Here's a slide from the sermon I did a year ago here. <clears throat> Some of the kingdom we see now, but some of it is not yet. For those of you who like charts, here's a timeline along the bottom. See, time-wise, Jesus came around 0 AD to 33 AD, roughly, and the cross and the resurrection, they were historical events that happened around that time. At the end of time, Jesus will come again, the second coming of Christ. That will, that's what we call the consummation, to give it a proper term, the end times. And we live in between these times. Uniquely, people before Jesus lived without, outside of the kingdom of God. Before Jesus, there is no kingdom of God in the world apart from a very limited presence of God in the temple, in the tabernacle, etc. But Jesus brought with him the kingdom of God. So when Jesus came, effectively, the kingdom of God began. The kingdom of heaven begins here when Jesus came. And it will end here with the second coming of Christ when it becomes eternal and everything is kingdom. And we live in between these two times. So some of the kingdom is now, but some of it is not yet. Some of it we can see, but some of it we're still waiting for. We live between the times then. So now 
We can see God's future breaking into our present. We can see God's kingdom. We can see signs of that. But not yet. Some of it is still to come. Some of it's not finished yet. We, can, we know what will happen because it's written in this book, in the Bible. You turn to the last book and you can see the last chapter of the story. It's all there. But it hasn't happened yet. And so we see in our age, in our time that we're living in, we see this kingdom now, but we also see the kingdom of this world. And there's a battle going on between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. We see, for example, that we can have God's Holy Spirit today. It's the kingdom of heaven now. But there's still evil in this world. That's the not yet point when evil is banished forever. We see that there are, today, we know there is victory over death. That's the promise of the kingdom of heaven that we have now. And yet, we know in this world we will still die because some of it is not yet that we're still waiting for. And we know that in this world we have full forgiveness today. It's here now. It's the kingdom of heaven. It's here now, full forgiveness. But we're not perfect. That's the not yet part that will happen later. So the kingdom of heaven is now and not yet. Two aspects to it. And therefore, when we pray this line in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, it has a wonderful double meaning when we pray your kingdom come. The next time you pray that, or maybe you already do, think about this. We're praying for the end. We're praying, Lord Jesus, I want you to come soon. Come soon. I want to see that day when you arrive. I want to be here. I want to, I want to see you coming among the clouds in glory. Bring on your kingdom. But we're also praying, Lord, right here and now today, I want your kingdom to come in the lives of people I will meet. I want to be the person who will listen to that person at work who has a problem. I want to be the person who has good news to my neighbour. I want to be the person who shares Jesus to my family. I want your kingdom to come today as well. It's a double meaning, now and not yet. And so last slide, as it says outside, this whole idea changes everything. This event, this historical event that took place around 30 AD changes everything. Everything is different. Being a people living in these times in between the now and the not yet, we can see God in the present and we can see the, the promises of God in the future, the now and the not yet. We can see reality in the context of eternity and we can see events that happen today and they may be difficult, difficult events, they often are in our lives, but we know there will be a time when all these things will pass. Just, uh, I don't know if you've seen that film, um, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, is that what it's called? Or The Most Exotic Marigold Hotel. It's not a great film, right? But there's a great line in it. There's a great line in it. This younger Indian hotelier is running his hotel and everything's going wrong, right? And he says to his guests, all will be well in the end. And if it isn't well, it isn't the end. All will be well in the end. And if it isn't well, it isn't the end. There's now and there's not yet. There's more to come. And we are the people tasked with bringing kingdom now to people around us. It's, it's good news now. It's not just about promise for the future. It is that, but it's good news now. We are the bringers of good news, the bringers of kingdom, the bringers of hope, the bringers of promise now, helping people around us to catch sight of something other, of something better. There's something else in this world. There's something else to cotton on to, even if people are not Christians and not religious. We are the bringers of that glimpse of something else, of kingdom, of kingdom promise. Let's pray as we end.
<clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we enter this week, Holy Week, Lord, we do enter uh, Holy Ground. So give us, Lord, uh, hearts that are receptive, Lord, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we go through this week. Lord, we thank you, Father, that uh, you use us, Lord, to bring your kingdom to people around us. Lord, may we be people who are listening and caring for those around us, people who have a message, people who bring people a glimpse of something other, of something better, as we ourselves look forward to what is to come. Thank you, Lord, that this changes everything. Amen.